0: Hello, this is Christopher Bandini with New Books and Psychoanalysis on the New Books Network. Uh, today we're going to speak with uh, Robert Drozek, uh, who wrote Psychoanalysis as an Ethical Process, which is on, um, on Rutledge, and it has a foreword by, uh, by Peter Fonagy. Now, Robert Drozik is an individual and group psychotherapist in the Adult Center for Borderline Personality Disorder at McLean Hospital. He serves as a teaching associate in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and as a supervisor of mentalization-based treatment through the Anna Freud Center in London. He is in private practice in Belmont, Massachusetts, specializing in the treatment of patients with borderline and narcissistic challenges. So um, welcome, Robert.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. Excited to be here.
0: Great. Uh, as is tradition here on new books and psychoanalysis, um, maybe you could tell us about the book and why you chose to write it. And also maybe to talk about, um, your definition of ethics and, um, you know, maybe as a, in contrast to how we, we sometimes think of it.
1: Okay. That sounds great. Um, yeah, well, I, I was a philosophy major in college and that was my main sort of area of interest and study was, um, ethical theory and specifically the, um, the philosophical theory of Immanuel Kant and um, very interested in his notion of um, human dignity. So the idea of the um, unconditional, incomparable worth of um, of human beings and um, spent a lot of time thinking about that. And um, while I was in college, I was also um, involved in intensive um, psychotherapy that ultimately transitioned into uh, a psychoanalysis and really was um, taken with uh, the correspondence between some of the ideas I was sort of immersed in and my own um, you know, experience in psychoanalysis. So noticing that um, as I came to know myself better, learn more about myself at a greater depth, um, I, there was a shift in my experience of other people that um, in areas where I would be stuck in myself, I would gain the ability to see parts of other people and to be motivated by the parts of other people, um, to really be more responsive to others as human beings. And I got really interested in how can we use the resources of philosophy and ethics, really, to explain um, how how, how that correspondence happens. And, um, I end up going to grad school in philosophy. That's how I moved to Boston to go to Tufts. Um, and, um, really kind of was like, this was going to be my life's work, focus on this. And, um, I ended up doing an independent study and really starting to write about this stuff. And, um, the professor, um, very kind, um, sort of scholar, she, um, I could tell she was a little taken aback by what i was writing about and she said it's it's, it's interesting um and it's it's good but it's um it's not philosophy <laughs> um and really that this idea that i was so interested in the processes of change um in in human beings and that really philosophy was more oriented towards concepts and constructs and theories and um so i think i, I was um taken aback by that surprise. And I ended up, um, you know, leaving graduate school. Um, and, um, I was like, you know, still a teaching assistant, but I had to, I just said, I think, I, I think I need to find what else I'm going to do. And I had a good friend who was a psychiatrist, um, at McLean hospital, which is where I currently work. And he, he said, you know, why don't you get a job here and just work in the mental health field? <laughs> and, um, that's when really um, I think you know I got started getting exposed to the ideas of, of psychoanalysis. Um, there was an analyst who was a who was a psychiatrist on one of the units where I worked, and um, she really introduced me to a lot of the lexicon. Um, I discovered the work of Stephen Mitchell um, and specific, you know, relational concepts and psychoanalysis um, and integration um, where Mitchell was really interested in the idea that we're not just driven by self-oriented drives. um, We're driven by desires for connectedness and the ability to be motivated by others. And, um, you know, I discovered the work of um, Jessica Benjamin um, and really Benjamin's ideas about how self-development is directly related to the ability to recognize others, and I was just blown away. Like, this is the stuff that I was sort of thinking about all the time, and there was a whole area of psychoanalysis that was really um, embracing these ideas. So so I decided to become a clinician. Um, And a lot of these experiences were born out in my experience of clinical work, where um, I would see that as my patients came to understand themselves better, know themselves better at a deeper level, um, you know, started to get to the reaches of their unconscious processes that affected their responsiveness to others. And, um, and also discovered that um, there was a way in which I was implicated in this as well, where I am um, in every treatment. Um, I would, you um, realized there was ways in which my own personality could set limits on where we could go together and so the work of sort of becoming a psychotherapist was um really how do i be transformed by this process as well you know sort of um uh slavin and Kriegman's idea about like why the analyst um, needs to change and um so I ultimately found this very meaningful, very fulfilling, and um, I was able to start writing about these things, really trying to synthesize and integrate um, these ideas from ethics with, um, you know, um, relational psychoanalysis, really. And um, that's sort of the, you know, the book ultimately includes, you know, a couple of my early papers from psychoanalytic dialogues. But ultimately, most of it's all new material, and it's really a an attempt to kind of grapple with um with sort of integrating psychoanalysis and ethics so um specifically um to the attempt to build a psychoanalytic model that's genuinely genuinely psychoanalytic so that really prioritizes the unconscious um, and transferential process um, while also explaining um Our everyday ethical intuitions about altruism um, human dignity freedom um, the importance of our behavior and um, and also a theory that tries to explain how it is that um, our responsiveness to self um, corresponds with um, our responsiveness to others so that um, ultimately is what I'm trying to um, tackle uh,
0: in the book just a small task
1: yeah. Right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was
0: fun, you, but, yeah. <laughs> you didn't take on too much there.
1: I know. It probably does sound grand, but it's, it's like what I've been thinking about for, you know, really for the past 20 years. So, it was, you know, but
0: yeah. What's been the traditional place of, of ethics and psychoanalysis? I mean, most people, I guess my associations to, you know, the code of ethics and this type of thing. And that's that's not really what, what you're speaking about at all.
1: That's a great point. Yeah. And I, and I write about this a bit in the book. Um, I think that a lot of um, sort of ethical thinking and psychoanalysis has been about um, essentially about behavior, what I would call behavioral ethics, you know, what we should or shouldn't do with patients, what they should or shouldn't do with us. And the idea is almost like almost it's, as long as everybody's behaving, then um, ethics is not horribly relevant. Um, Recently, there's been uh, kind of like a burgeoning interest in issues of social justice in the sort of the justice of institutions and really trying to kind of apply um, psychoanalytic thinking to to think about issues of justice and injustice. Um, both of those are, are I think are really great, but they are kind of more um, external or exterior conceptions of ethics um, and I think my main interest is how, what is, what about ethics um, ethics having to sort of do with the the center of the analytic process you know what happens between patient and analyst um, how does change happen so that really ethics is a um, Not an incidental issue that may be relevant at some times and not others, but is really related to, um, you know, sort of everyday um, analytic work. And I think the only way you can get at that is if we think about ethics as involving um, what I call the dialectic between behavior and motivation that if we think about ethics behaviorally ethics is always going to be incidental to analytic process because in psychoanalysis we're interested in subjectivity but if we think about ethics as what motivates us and how we're motivated by the dignity and well-being of ourselves as well as others then suddenly ethics has a much broader relevance to to the center of psychoanalysis
0: and if i have it correct correctly relational analysis is central to this idea or the evolution of relational analysis is, is key here.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I mean, I think that, I think one of my, um, one of the things I'm really interested in is the trajectory of, of theory development in psychoanalysis and how does it, how has it sort of evolved over time? And, um, my, my sense is that concerns about ethics were driving a lot of the relational turn um, that I think definitely in Greenberg and Mitchell's early text. Um, there was sort of concerns about um, drives as being the, 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 the primary way of explaining human experience because there was something individualistic, at least on, on that early way of thinking that there was something individualistic about drives and then with Mitchell's work he kind of took it i think to a more um he crystallized that point even more because the concern was that somehow there was something almost demeaning about thinking about the person as being driven by endogenous drives you know and i think now we've kind of moved away from some of these polarities and we could see how we could have a more inclusive um, way of thinking but at the time Mitchell was concerned about that. And if you read his writing in the 1988 book, um, there's a lot of this idea of um, the bestial core and that there's something that doesn't feel right about the bestial core and thinking about human beings as animals. That, and so there was, there's, a, there's a humanism in all this. And, um, and I think that was driving a lot of Mitchell's thinking and um, in a lot of different ways, people have taken it up. This, this idea of the, the analyst is having too much authority um, or being neutral, um, that really there are ethical concerns there. Like we want a more egalitarian psychoanalytic vision. Um, so that I think was driven by ethics. Um, some of the epistemological concerns, you know, of like, I've got the truth about what's going on with the patient, um, that really know that we actually could be missing many things that patients could see stuff about us that we can't see with our, about ourselves. So I think that these concerns about ethics kind of saturated and drove a lot of these, um, theoretical shifts that were happening in the eighties and nineties.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, a great point. You know, analytic neutrality and the idea that, um, what neutrality looked like, which was a kind of, um, uh, maybe an attenuated version of the analyst or someone who was more withdrawn or held back, mm-hmm. um, you know, was considered an ethical stance. Like you were out of the way of the patient in a way you were kind of standing out of the way so that mm-hmm. the patient could really emerge. And then you could, and an interpretation being the key, um, the key, the key point of the therapeutic action. So then you could interpret intelligently, yeah. but otherwise you were all mixed in and, and that this was, I guess, you know, what we're saying in the relational turn was being questioned, this idea that um, someone could be neutral and that neutrality looked the way that the class, classical analysts thought it looked.
1: Well, yeah, I think that is a great point. And an interesting thing about that, and this is sort of like, I think it's important to not, um, I don't draw too sharp a contrast. I actually think um, traditional, like, ego-psychological concerns about neutrality, um, those were also, I think, driven by concerns about ethics. So that um, the idea was is that neutrality was the best way to safeguard the autonomy of the patient. It's that if we get too much in the mix, like you're describing, we somehow could be um, interfering with the patient becoming an autonomous subject um but i think that what ended up happening is that a lot of these concerns about neutrality and, and relational thinking it was the idea that analysts were having these um these concerns and these sort of um this these this wish to respond more spontaneously or expressively so i think that the idea was it's almost a, uh you know it wasn't spelled out this way but that somehow neutrality was actually at odds with the the autonomy of the analyst actually. So, so I think it's a sort of an effort to almost um, sort of to really correct what might be sort of like something that could feel a little limiting or constrictive um, of the analyst's subjectivity.
0: Well, it seemed to move that from a point where limitation was kind of almost like a positive, like we were supposed to be limited to a sense that that was restrictive was kind of part of the relational yeah. term was like, we're being restricted too much, where before it was like the restriction was an ethical point, right? You know, to stand back was an ethical point. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: and along these lines, I think that the, the papers and the work that really kind of brought this this part of it out was – like lou aaron's the the patient's experience of the analyst subjectivity as well as jessica benjamin's early writing because the the concern here is that it's not just about hey let's let's pay attention to the analyst now like that can be sort of um portrayed as something of a caricature of of relational thinking it's the idea that um if the analyst is constrained and limited that we're actually not giving the patient the full opportunity to engage with the analyst as a full subject. So that there's something that there's actually a correspondence here. Like we need in order to sort of help the patient sort of a, attain full subjecthood, that we actually need to be able to um, achieve full subjecthood. So I, it's it's almost I think that's a cool thing about it is that it's it's not like we have to choose it's that sort of both are necessary in order to kind of really help the patient.
0: And, and achieving full subjecthood is kind of an ongoing process. It's ne, in a sense never yeah. achieved. Uh, we're just exactly. always going towards it. And and in that in going towards it, the patient is transformed. Like you said, I think Edgar Levinson also had that point that we had to, if you're familiar with his work of, um, that you yeah. had to be transformed uh, in order for the patient to change as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you have some great. Um, maybe you can even speak about some of the case uh, material in the book, because I think it really makes it makes the book come alive. Um, you know, interspersed oh, with the with you. the philosophical points and the and the theoretical points was was so much great case material.
1: Oh great. Yeah. Is there anything um in particular that you well, like me to see? I'll I
0: mention there was Fred and Jonathan, but I also was thinking of the um the example where I don't I'll bring it back to your attention when you're you hit a deer with your car.
1: Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Well that one I'm excited about to be honest. I'm not hitting the deer. <laughs> that that was bad. Um but um uh, but that one is an interesting um interesting one for me. So um yeah, basically, um, yeah, sure. do you want, me, can I, you want me to speak to it a little bit? Yeah, so, um, you know, I was I was on my way to work, and I get to, um, you know, every every morning I get to work very early, and um, I was driving by this um, lovely golf course with rolling hills, and um, I looked off to my left, and there were just these two gorgeous deer, um, you know, sort of just sitting there or just standing there in the meadow and it's just it's just lovely and i'm like this is just gorgeous and then i hear a like it's a bam like my a thud my i i, I hit something really really heavy and i look back at my rear skid and i look back in my rear view mirror and i i had hit a deer and thank god that the deer was um not killed but it was you know definitely injured and sort of going up the hill and it the whole i just um, the whole front of my car, um, was, you know, destroyed basically. Um, so I was getting to work and I was really shaken up. I was, you know, worried for the deer and also just like, you know, I don't hit things every day. And, um, and I, you know, I was a little late cause I had to like deal with my car and, you know, um, the bumper hanging off and stuff like that. And, and I go to my, my seven o'clock appointment and I'm, I'm a few minutes late for the appointment, you know, it was like seven Oh three or something like that. And, um, and the patient is this patient who, interestingly, has been in um, four times weekly psychoanalysis for, for 15 years. And um, ultimately had a really um, bad response to it, um, became increasingly um, suicidal, um, was really desperate for the analyst's um, reassurance in various ways, but had kind of a, a regressive um, experience of the analytic process. But it went on um, for a very long time in the patient's life, um, got, you know, increasingly constrained. So I was asked to um, to consult for the patient, and um, when ultimately the analyst was gonna was you know decided that a termination was necessary because the patient was getting was in such a bad spot, and um, you know I could have seen him for you know multiple times weekly, but it seemed like there was something about the that traditional structure of the analytic process that actually that that was actually not helpful for the patient. So I agreed to see him um, once weekly which he was terrified by. Um, but um, it's, you know, it's quite, um, you know, it, it's sort of, there's a lot to that treatment. Um, but I think what was happening is, as I so I walked down the hallway, and so the, the patient had made tremendous strides um, through, you know, working this less um, intensive treatment approach, um, still analytic, but just less intensive. And You know, um, I think I outline more about like what I actually did with him. But the point for this for this part of the story is that um, naturally, if I were that like if I were late for the appointment, um, I would say to my patient like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm late. I I just hit a deer. But um, with this patient, he was very, very um, strict in a way. Um, and um, he really was always afraid that everybody was going to take from him. and he felt like he needed to always get his needs met um, if he was going to be okay, and that the best way to do that was to, um, you know, try to seek this attentiveness and reassurance from the other. And I couldn't bring myself to say it. Like I couldn't. I just felt like strangely kind of ashamed. Um, sitting with this. I just apologize for being late. Um, and it gets at the way in which I think, um, given his sort of psychic organization, I knew that he was going to feel like he wasn't going to care about the fact that I, this had just happened to me. And um, so I couldn't make myself vulnerable to him in that way. And so ultimately, and I think, I, you know, this is in, I think, chapter seven of the book where I sort of lay out the treatment in, in detail, but this sort of a really important piece in terms of a part of it is when I was able to try to give voice to this and tell him about, like, months later, that what I couldn't share with him, and um, because I felt like he wouldn't, he wouldn't have cared about sort of what had gone on with me that morning, and he was able to actually own, you're right. I would have felt like you were stealing my time. And this was really what opened up the treatment is our interest together collaboratively um, in his lack of responsiveness to myself as his therapist, but also to the other people in his life. And through being able to attend to this together um, and what this was about for him analytically, he's had pretty massive transformations in the quality of his life and his ability for intimacy and close relationships. So that, I think, is another thing, um, just to end on this point, that that is really important to me in the book, is I feel like um, uh, clinicians often have this experience of being disregarded, used, and neglected by their patients. And Um, I think we think that we're almost, that's what's supposed to happen because we're the clinician and they're the patient. Um, And maybe that's true. But at the same time, counter-transferentially, I don't think we often put words on those experiences. So we're we're almost keeping out our feeling of neglect by the patient. And in that way, we're not necessarily doing the patient any service because if we're feeling that way, used by the patient, then most likely other people in their lives are too. And it's actually constraining their capacity for connectedness. So I think one of the things that I'm interested in, in the book is how can we bring those counter transference experiences a little more explicitly into the analytic. And,
0: and you see that kind of in, in an ethical dimension that somehow it's being more, um, more honest, more forthright, less, you know, how does it, how is it related to, to the ethical stance?
1: to ethics okay good that's that's a great question so um so that actually relates to i think your earlier question of um sort of how do i conceptualize ethics and um so um you know traditionally in ethical theory there's been this sort of long-standing debate um, between what's called um deontology and and consequentialism or utilitarianism and essentially it's it's the issue of um what is the source of, of ethics? And consequentialists will say that it's human well-being. The um, the issue of um, pleasure or flourishing is what um, motivates us ethically. And so we're then called upon to promote as much um, flourishing in, in the human experience as we can. Where deontology, which comes out of Kantianism, is the idea that people have... Um, certain basic rights and that they really have um, an intrinsic worth um, or a dignity that we're, that we are obligated to also respect, you know, that we, um, that we like actually need to relate to other people as um, ends in themselves rather than just means. And so when I'm thinking about um, sort of motivational process through an ethical frame, I'm gonna be asking the question, In what ways is the patient um, not motivated by my well-being? Uh, In what ways is the patient undermining my dignity? I'm also going to be asking that question of myself. In what ways am I just using the patient for a sense of self-esteem? In what ways am I not motivated by certain conscious or unconscious parts of the and actually, so that's for that's an important part of analytic listening on this approach. What am I not motivated by, you know? Or and also when it comes to aggression, I think actually this fits nicely with um, with Kleinian theory. In what ways might the patient not just not be motivated by me, but actually want to harm me? And, and that, I think, is, a, is an important part that needs to be sort of looked at in the work. And so when I'm listening for the material, um, in addition to sort of, you know, thinking about what um, what's motivating the patient and what's going on for them unconsciously, I'm going to be also thinking about it through this ethical lens. And um, usually there is some... Uh, counter-transferential experience related to the ethical neglect or the ethical violation. And it could, yeah. So go ahead. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Are, are you saying in a way, like say for, if I just have an example of the patient doesn't show up or whatever, they're not aware of the impact on you of they're not showing up in in an emotional sense or, or that you don't exist in that moment or you don't, you're not in their mind and that there's a, is there, is it a goal then of the treatment to have them, <laughs> you know, to use that experience so that they, so that they keep you more in mind.
1: Okay, great. I mean, it could be about a behavior like that, but I think often it's more about, um, just sort of the more mundane moments of analytic process. So for example, um, there could be the experience of how does the patient relate to our interpretations? You know, there are times at which sort of like, uh, A patient can seem a little uh, irritated by us interrupting them, you know, and almost wanting to sort of get back to what they're saying. And granted, that's totally fine. There's nothing sort of like inherently, quote, wrong with that. But it's just something to be noticed. Right. How does the sort of patient relate to what I have to to communicate Um, and. You know, it's the the idea is not to basically make it all about the the clinician, but it is to make sure if there's sort of calcified structures in the analytic process where the patient is disregarding or only using the therapist, um, can we begin to put words on this in some way? So, um, you know, I um, just did a presentation last weekend at psychology and the other here in Boston as this um, sort of conference about, um, you know, psychoanalysis, ethics and um, and theology and sort of was giving a presentation on this on this very topic. And it's almost um, there's a way in which like I, I have a patient, you know, for example, you know, who really values sort of the therapy. But it also feels like he just relates to me primarily as serving a function for him, whether that be providing admiration or listening or validation. And I can then feel less connected to him. You know, then we all have those patients. If you think about your caseload, you'll have the patients you feel like who really care about you as as a person. And then other patients who are more just using you. And there's nothing, again, nothing wrong with that. But do we always notice that? I think we feel it.
0: But do we put words on and it? And use it interpretively or as an intervention to?
1: As an, yes, definitely, as an intervention. Um, and, like, and most likely, we are counter-transferentially feeling the ways that a lot of people in our patients' lives feel, actually. It's usually not, sometimes it's just about us, but other times it actually gives us a big clue into what's going on for the patient at the level of the unconscious.
0: And I think it reminds me of uh, Stephen Mitchell, I I believe it was in Hope and Dread, uh, that he talks about how we have conflicting goals. The the patient comes in with certain ideas and wishes for treatment, but the therapist has other wishes (laughs) about how the treatment's going to go. And... Who yeah. eventually, you know, you know, there's, does, does one win out. Does, is it a kind of a, some, some sort of merger that goes on, but that this is often at odds for quite some time.
1: That's great. And I would propose this is not like, um, kind of like to your earlier point. Um, this is, this is really an issue of process over content. And I think that's, that's something that's why the book is called, um, psychoanalysis as an ethical mm-hmm. process. Um, And not like it's not about converting our patients to be ethical. It's that there are certain experiences in sort of in us that we often don't put words on. uh, Words on, and bringing that into the analytic discourse evolves and alters the analytic discourse. And ultimately, in in some ways, it's sort of a bit of a practice of can you regard? Can the patient regard your independent subjectivity? Um, and what does that actually um, what does that actually look like? Can we br- begin to progressively bring it in, not to talk about it all the time, but there are times where I think you know um, this the the work does kind of center around patients' difficulties in this department. And ultimately, it's not like and people are always doing it for their own reasons. It's usually the idea that I need to disregard you. Or I need to violate you in order to get my own psychological needs met. It's not often born out of sort of just straight maliciousness. It's usually because this is, this is what I feel like I need in order to have value and to achieve the idealized state. So we need to get to that, too. But I guess my main point in the book is that traditionally we focus more on the latter, not as much on the former. And can we kind of round out the dialogue in a way?
0: Well, often the, uh, the, the analyst will come up with a justification for not saying or not bringing the material you're mentioning into the room like that that the patient isn't ready to hear it or that the timing isn't right, or I have to make sure I'm, I'm right. And so there's a kind of a rationalization to not say those things or the patient will get so angry with me and leave or whatever, you know, this type of stuff. And,
1: yeah.
0: you know, as way yeah. of holding back and
1: yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's often sort of justified in terms of the patient's needs and sort of the, the clinical needs. And I think, I think there's some, that that's a reasonable point, but if it goes on forever, <laughs> that sort of would be a concern you know this is definitely not about i guess what freud called quote wild analysis right um but yeah definitely you know and so the often but in some ways too i think there's there's concerns about becoming the bad object you know that a lot of times we almost sort of um cater to the grandiose or narcissistic wishes um, and, you know, sometimes self-focused wishes of the patient because we're worried that if we don't, we're going to incur the patient's aggression. And so that is my experience is actually being more explicit in these ways. You know, you often can get either an aggressive response or a shame response, but that becomes folded in
0: Well, I think that's one of the, that's one of the big shifts is that, is that's worth the risk now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, and the question would be that essentially what's the loss, is there a loss in not doing that? And I personally, I think that there, that there is, I think, you know, the, the big loss is, is that sort of patients can remain stuck in more insular intersubjective state where there is meaning out there. There are other subjects out there. And I think that's sort of the importance of Jessica Benjamin's work and um, also Searles. Searles would write about this when he was writing about the, um, the patient's therapeutic strivings. You know, um, uh, Hoffman writes about this when he talks about patient and therapist as agents. And the idea is this is, this is not about moralizing. This is the idea that there are other subjects who are themselves a source of meaning. And I don't know what your experience is, but for me to be able to fully be connected to and motivated by the subjective world of another is actually like, quite powerful and beautiful. And it's like, it's the reason it's one of the, you know, the best things about my life, getting to be a therapist and a a dad and a husband, you know? Um, And sometimes I think there can be a self-indulgence that can happen, or we can inadvertently promote self-indulgence and thus more suffering by not bringing ourselves more fully into the work. Uh,
0: Well, I think you have to have the experience of it because it is somewhat it can be frightening to think that that's going to happen for all the reasons we're mentioning, but I'm glad you brought Searles into it. And I think interpersonalist thinkers like Searles and Wolstein would say, if you're not holding, if you're not saying these things, then the patient is sensing it anyway. And they're seeing in you that it's not safe to bring it up. And that that, and yeah, that that modeling absolutely. is not what you want to unconsciously or consciously invoke at all. You want to go to a place where, where it's worth trying this type of thing, you know, so that you get, the greater intimacy and connection.
1: That's great. No, I think that that's definitely right. Yeah. Cause nothing is hidden basically is what you're saying.
0: And, um, yeah, I think we're, we've covered like kind of the therapeutic action. Is there anything else you want to say about it before we move on? Have we gotten there?
1: Well, the, the one thing about one thing about therapeutic action, um, which I think is important is, um, You know, one of the things I write about in the book is sort of the different models of therapeutic action. And I wrote about this in a paper last year as well. It came out in dialogues. But um, most of our models of therapeutic action are what would be called ethically neutral. You know, they don't use ethics to explain um, therapeutic change. And then we have um, Winnicott coming along and um, Kohut coming along and the contemporary self-psychologist sort of coming into the picture. And there, there was a big interest in the um, ethical capacities of the analyst that essentially trying to kind of create an optimal holding environment or sort of employing empathy to help restore the patient's sense of self. That's what I call um, ethically unilateral. You're interested in the ethics of the analyst, less about the patient. The patient is the, the, um, the grateful recipient of the therapist's enhanced ethical capacities. But what we have in intersubjective thinking is what I call um, ethical intersubjectivity, where therapeutic action is oriented um, towards the uh, mutual ethical development of analyst and patient. And so that's that's where we have Jessica Benjamin, Searles, Hoffman, um, Slavin and Kriegman's ideas and why the analyst needs to change. Um, and also Fonagy um, and Bateman's model of mentalization based treatment, um, where you are trying to stimulate the patient's capacity to regard um, the therapist as another mind in the room. And um, and essentially, I think my I have a particular version of this, this ethical intersubjectivity where um, we want to be asking the question of um, in what ways am I consciously and unconsciously valuing the patient? Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, I can be valuing the we all have preferences of ways that we want our patients to be. You know, we may not formulate those things explicitly, but we have these preferred relational configurations between ourselves and the patient that are usually reflective of our own personalities and needs, but also the patient and who that particular patient is. So it's idiosyncratic. Um, we're often not, we don't fully spell out what, what that is. The patient is bringing those, aims, those same forms of value into the therapeutic relationship. They are valuing us in certain ways. They're devaluing us when we do other things or relate to them in other ways. Oftentimes, this is implicit. And so, um, my proposal in the book is that therapeutic action is oriented towards each party coming to value the other under a wider range of conditions. And that what's central there is that often the only way that this comes to happen, you know, often for the patient, is that through the patient coming to know herself at a deeper level and to sort of like understand these processes within the transference. And also for us, we need to be willing to look at how am I um, unconsciously often using the patient for a sense of self-esteem? And oftentimes this is oriented towards um, our theories, You know, because if I have a theory that that sort of has a particular model of health in it, then I'm going to value the patient most um, when they're helping me to be the good therapist. And and how can we make these implicit processes a a little more explicit so that we can actually, the both ourselves and the patient can come to value each other under a wider range of conditions. And that is what I would propose is actually sort of the um we're, we're becoming progressively responsive to the other person's dignity. And that, you know, that's sort of the model, which you can talk more about. But I think that's the sort of my general model of, of change. And I realize that some listeners may say, well, it's that's not psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis. We're supposed to be more neutral. We're supposed to approach the process without memory or desire. But my experience is even the person who holds that view is still, we can't, we're humans. We can't not value the patient under certain conditions and devalue them under others. It's just part of being human. Um, And so trying to kind of um, notice that, understand it, communicate it, and expand those conditions, um, I would propose is the nature of, of therapeutic change.
0: Um, yeah, and I suppose the, uh, again, the the challenge to it is who determines what the values are or, um, you know, who, uh, you you know, if, or, or, or again, if you're involved, right, the, the intersubjective sense is, is we don't know who's, (laughs) where, where anyone begins and ends or something. I'm kind of being, you know, kind of taking the devil's advocate's point of view and that uh, a stance that's known as reality, as, as neutrality. Counters that that you have to get out of the way, right? Right. And you're saying you're you're saying, look, that's not really the case.
1: Yeah, And, and in terms of the values point, I think that's that's a it's worth underscoring that is that the when I use the term value, it's not like sometimes we'll use that term value as like an abstract value like justice or honesty or truth or something like that. This is more of relational valuing, right? Who do we who do we need the other person to be? You know, do I like, you know, sort of like, in just in our, in our lives, we all have certain versions of ourselves that we like more. And then we have other versions of ourselves that we don't like at all. So usually what happens in impasses is, is that the patient, um, and this is Jessica's Jessica Benjamin's idea of do or done to, um, that the thing that you most want from me is what makes me feel bad. And the thing that I most want from you is what makes you feel bad. And so there, you're right. There's no, there's no arbiter of quote value and what's valuable, but it kind of doesn't matter. Objective value doesn't matter. It's if, can we understand the ways in which we are enacting this together? And, and then sort of like what's ultimate, you know, it doesn't really matter as long as we can sort of start to make explicit what's really been implicit or unconscious in the dyad. Uh,
0: so moving on a little bit, uh, can you speak about your ideas about technique and the role of where technique stands now in psychoanalysis?
1: Great. Yeah. Um, well, so, um, a lot of the, um, a lot of the book, um, sort of like one of the sort of my big concerns in the book is that there are certain certain, uh, ethical experiences that I think psychoanalysis has struggled to fully explain, like the idea of altruism, like the idea of dignity. And I get into the book of sort of like where you sort of run into trouble there. Um, And also there's been a general... um, uh, n- sort of a not full appreciation of the importance of ethics and psychoanalytic process. Um, and it's, it's often related to um, assumptions about what ethics is, you know, that somehow ethics is, um, is more about behavior, or ethics is more consciously oriented, or ethics uh, assumes the possibility of freedom, or in psychoanalysis, we need to also appreciate the ways in which we're determined. So all these assumptions, so what I try to do in the book is to advocate um, a dialectical model of ethics where we try to start to try to um, to hold these dialectics, the the dialectic between consciousness and unconscious, uh, the dialectic between self and other. I think that's another thing that has prevented psychoanalysts from sort of fully um, embracing some of these ethical ideas is that there's there's the idea that, ethics is too focused on the needs of others and what about the self um so a lot of these sort of if we embrace more of a dialectical vision of ethics we can hold a lot of these polarities now that is important implications for technique um cuz my my proposal is that um that a lot of these dialectics if we're going to have a a you know, what I call an ethical psychoanalysis, we're going to need to hold these dialectics. And that, that means from a technical perspective, um, attending to aspects of the patient's consciousness as well as unconscious, you know, attending, not just to their motivational processes, but to their actual behaviors. How do they live in the world? You know, it's, it's, and also attending not just to the patient's experience, but, um, to other subjects' experience, whether it be the other people in the patient's life, whether it be us as the other person in the in the patient's life, um, and also I think another important dialectic is this dialectic between exploration and change. You know, I think historically a lot of analytic thinking has been oriented towards the idea that change comes as a byproduct of the exploratory process. Um, which I totally believe, but there's also a way in which we can't fully evade our responsibility that there are maybe other things our patients need other than exploration and sort of how do we balance that. So a lot of what I'm trying to propose in the book is uh, holding these dialectics technically so that we're attending to these multiple dimensions of the patient's life rather than just focusing on essentially exploration, self, um, unconscious process. And I think in practice, actually, this is what analysts do. Uh, But for some reason, our theories don't fully embrace these ideas. So I think there's a gap between what we actually do in practice, which is necessary in order to be connected to the patient as a real person, as a full person, and then how we write about it. And how we write about what's done um, from the perspective of technique. So that's my broad, I don't know if that's what you're asking, but that's sort of my broad stance on um, on trying to take a more dialectical approach to, um, to technique in, in the analytic process.
0: Well, you bring up a, a point towards the end of the book about really being concerned about what helps the patient. And I think that maybe based on our personalities, all of us, some of us, we we stick with our theory. Uh, maybe in contrast to helping to what what actually would serve would be of service to the patient in, in a kind of pragmatic way, because that's not analytic or or whatever. So our theory becomes kind of a, a fallback, and, and and so seductive. It's so it, it's such a such a kind of something we can really hold on to. It's also very gratifying to have complex theory. Um,
1: well yes exactly yeah that's that's where theory i think can become dangerous because the theory actually i'm i don't write about this in the book but this is one thing i think about which is um there's another dialectic that we have to maintain which is the dialectic between theory and life you know or treatment in life that we need to actually be accountable to um To patients actual lives which i think you know oftentimes we are but there are times where um the justification to what you're getting at for sort of not attending to the patient's functioning um is that it's not analytic and that well what i'm doing here is more of an analytic treatment um and you know i think there can be ethical challenges with that especially when um I think like like the case that I write about in the book, Jonathan, where they're they're having a counter-therapeutic response. So, um, so yeah,
0: no, I totally. Agree. Uh, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity. There's so much more to talk about. The book is just just very rich and and has a lot of surprise and you know just great things in it. Um, but maybe you have a, a second to tell us what you're working on now.
1: Oh yeah, so. Um, well, yeah. So I just um, it relates to what I mentioned earlier in in the um, you know the discussion, which is um, I just sort of put forward a a, a panel pro- proposal for the um, IRP conference in Los Angeles. So we'll see if it gets accepted. But I just just finished um, my next paper, um, which is called um, the patients uh, the patient as an ethical subject. Um, technical implications of the patient's irreducible responsibility. So that's a play on Rennick's important article about um, the irreducible subjectivity of the analyst. Um, An implication of the ethical turn in psychoanalysis is that patients also have an ethical responsibility, um, whether it be to other people in their lives or to the analyst herself. And I realize this may be controversial. Um, Actually, I think maybe that's why I'm sort of interested in it. But, um, but really what I'm sort of talking about is that it's an interesting thing where um, we call it, like, if you look at um, our models of therapeutic action, they really do emphasize this mutual ethical development of analyst and patient, many of these theories that I mentioned earlier in the discussion. But for some reason, we don't think about that as much at the level of technique. You know, so we have a model of health where the patient is ethically constituted, but how often do we talk about um, essentially like how patients develop ethically and how does that relate to their therapeutic progress? We, we tend to kind of almost think like, well, the analyst assumes responsibility for their role in the impasse, and then we explore And then naturally this development happens. But there is a way in which we could actually be avoiding our responsibility along these lines as well. So part of what I try to get to is actually giving um, ideas about what a theory of technique that would do this would sort of be oriented around that still privileges exploration of the unconscious while also uh, affirming
0: the patient as an ethical subject. Great. Look forward to to seeing it and maybe seeing you in Los Angeles. Yeah, we'll see. Um, I just wanted to thank you for being on on today. Uh, We've been speaking with uh, Robert Drozek, who's the author of Psychoanalysis as an Ethical Process, uh, which is on uh, Rutledge. This is Christopher Bandini um, for New Books and Psychoanalysis and New Books uh, Network.